WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello, hello. It is Thursday, February 22nd. Uh, Joe Biden is out in California making some speeches, raising a ton of dough. Uh, he has outraised Donald Trump significantly, though I will say that um, after, you know, after Trump got the um, judgment from Engeron, his three hundred and fifty plus million dollar judgment, which may or may not also come with a hundred million dollars of interest. <laughs> Donald Trump set up a GoFundMe. Uh, to pay that fee, because even though he claims he's a billionaire, uh, nothing, nothing, nothing comes out of his own pocket. No, no. Why? When I can get my rubes, I mean, my followers to pay for things that GoFundMe, according to what I read this morning at, um, when last we checked on it, had raised just under a million dollars, nine hundred thousand dollars. And uh, there were that came from 17,000 donors. When are these people who clearly don't have a lot of money, but have a lot of faith? When are they going to wake up to the grift? Do you think they ever will? I don't know. I would like to think it's possible. Do their kids because I'm guessing these are like older folks doing this. I could be wrong. Um, when their kids get wind of the fact that they are spending this kind of money to pay Donald Trump's legal judgments. <sighs> um, it would seem to me that that would be a cause for concern in a family. But, you know, what do, what do I know? Um, uh, in other news, I hope you... Um, your AT&T phone is back online. It was a huge outage. The whole network went down for hours earlier today. It is reportedly back up. Uh, Verizon wasn't affected. I've seen reports that say T-Mobile wasn't affected, but I also saw something that said T-Mobile might have been affected. So I don't know if uh, if you're a T-Mobile customer if your phone went out today or whether or not it didn't, but uh, chances are you lost service for a few hours if you are an AT&T customer. We don't really know much about what happened um, except for the fact that it's back up and running. Yay! <laughs> uh, you don't really know how much you depend on your phone until it isn't there for you. Uh, I usually discover that like once in a while, I'll go out and realize after I'm out somewhere that I left my phone at home because, as I may have mentioned before, I'm famous for putting my phone down somewhere and walking away from it and then trying to figure out where the heck it is. Uh, but so once in a while, I leave the house without it. And I have to tell you, I get a quick half second of panic. And then I sort of breathe a sigh of relief. You know, for a little while, I'm going to be unreachable. And it kind of feels good. I mean, 
you know, most families do use these phones to stay in touch. And God knows if your kid needs you, you want to be there. But once in a while, just being out of out of range of everybody. Whew, it's kind of like a breath of fresh air. But um, only for a little while. I haven't read too much about this specific story. I want to share with you a little news item from this morning's Wall Street Journal. Like me, you may have been seeing really more and more articles about hacking. You know, it was discovered that hackers had infiltrated a lot of our infrastructure, a lot of our utility structure. And the fear was that they were from another country, most likely China, and that they were positioning themselves with code lying in wait in our infrastructure. And that's, say, something terrible happened, and for some reason we went to war with China. They could shut us down. There were multiple instances found across our infrastructure of infiltration by foreign governments. Now, since it became public, I'm going to take a leap of faith here and assume that means that it, the hacking, the malware was removed or neutralized. But here's a little item in today's Wall Street Journal. The Biden administration plans to invest billions of dollars in the domestic manufacturing of cargo cranes. And I read that and I was like, huh, of, of cargo cranes? The government is going to invest billions in the manufacture of cargo cranes? That seems a rather specific, rather odd, particular, particularly narrow focus for billions of dollars. Well, the rest of it says that there are fears. Most of the cranes used are made in China. Cargo cranes at various ports tend to be Chinese-built. There are fears that these Chinese cranes uh, come with advanced software that poses a potential national security risk. It was a little unclear whether that security risk would simply apply to how the ports function or whether there was a larger issue here. But isn't that interesting? We are going to start making our own cargo cranes because we think that the ones built in China come with some kind of software that potentially puts our national security at risk. And I'm glad somebody's paying attention to this kind of stuff, and I'm glad it doesn't have to be me. But, I, you know, another kudos to the Biden administration for staying on top of this. I want to revisit something that I spoke about earlier this week that I still wish was getting a lot more coverage. And that is this. You remember the the Congress people, the Republicans in the House of Representatives not only wanted to impeach um, the department, um, 
of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, they want to impeach President Biden because um, because he's corrupt. You know, this is they have evidence of corruption and they have an FBI informant that, you know, said all this stuff about Hunter Biden and the and, and foreign governments, et cetera, and so forth. It has been a drumbeat. These stories have been covered relentlessly. Only within the last few days, we discovered that this FBI confidential informant was lying all along. The FBI confidential informant, a guy by the name of Alexander Smirnov, has admitted that all of this supposed dirt he had on Joe Biden, Jim Biden, Hunter Biden, uh, it came from Russian intelligence operatives. It was a misinformation, disinformation campaign. The FBI, because he's an FBI informant, had this information. Republicans in Congress were screaming at Christopher Ray that they needed to see this. The information, because Ray buckled, was eventually passed along to them. But at the time it was passed along, they were all informed that the information had not been corroborated. The FBI got this information, a confidential informant said X, Y, and Z, but they were not able to ascertain that any of it was true. Um, both Jen Psaki and Alex Wagner on MSNBC put together a bunch of clips of Republicans talking about this information from Alexander Smirnoff, this, the, the link that was going to cause them to impeach Biden and show how corrupt he was, not just Trump. Yeah, you think it's just Trump who's corrupt? Well, we're going to prove to you Biden's corrupt, too. They were warned by Christopher Ray that none of the information in the file had been corroborated by the FBI. These were the allegations. But man, oh man, the way they talked about it, you'd never know that it wasn't proven information. You're going to recognize some of the voices, some of the voices you're not. Trust me, they're all Republicans, and they are all waxing poetic on how this file is true and credible, and it is going to bring Biden down. Listen to this. You have the confidential FBI informant who's basically saying that Joe Biden took $5 million from Burisma. The informant was a you know, highly valued human source for the FBI. A trusted, highly credible informant. A trusted, confidential informant. They had a they credible source, one of their good sources. Their most credible paid FBI informant. We... Uh, have determined that whistleblower is extremely credible. The details come from an FBI informant who is very trusted. A highly reliable informant that has always checked out all the information he's ever given us has checked out. A confidential human source gave credible information. This is a very crucial piece of our investigation. One of the FBI's top informants, a guy with impeccable credentials, a great track record, reported an allegation that Joe Biden took a $5 million bribe right under Barack Obama's nose. Even a trusted FBI informant has alleged a bribe to the Biden family. Kevin McCarthy sounding such, such like a statesman. Yes, yes. Credible, 
seriously, when Christopher Ray hands you this and says none of this is checked out, we haven't been able to verify any of this, but here you go. Here's what our confidential informant alleges. Oh, no. Credible, 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 credible. Republican Ken Buck, who um, <laughs> used to be considered a, a pretty conservative Republican, but one thing Ken Buck um, won't do is um, he's, unlike Jim Jordan, he won't obfuscate. He won't just spew the party line because he's supposed to. Um, I think he's getting really he used to be one of the most conservative of them, and I think he is getting, this is my personal opinion, I think he's getting really disgusted, just utterly and completely disgusted, you know, with the way the most radical members of his party are controlling everything and pushing an agenda that is making them all look like idiots. Ken Buck was um, chatting with Caitlin Collins, and uh, they talked about, they eventually talk about aid to Ukraine, but he starts off by talking about this impeachment that basically has blown up in the face of Republicans of his party. Listen to this. Looking at what you said last September, you were condemning your own party's impeachment efforts, saying that Republicans in the House who are itching for an impeachment inquiry are relying on an imagined history. Did you ever think that, that it would collapse in this spectacular of a fashion? Well, Caitlin, it's even more of an imagined history now. Uh, obviously, uh, this witness, and, and we were warned at the time that we received the uh, document uh, outlining this witness's testimony. We were warned that uh, the credibility of this statement was, was not known. And yet, uh, people... Uh, my colleagues went out and, and talked to the public about how this was credible and how it was damning and how uh, it, it proved President Biden's, uh, at the time Vice President Biden's, uh, complicity in receiving bribes. Um, it appears to absolutely be false and to really undercut the, the nature of the charges. I, I will say that it's suspicious that anybody would pay Hunter Biden as much money as they paid him uh, without any uh, expertise in the oil and gas industry, without any expertise in international banking. So those things are suspicious. But uh, again, there's no link directly to Vice President Biden's activities. I think some people may look at this, though, and see even the handpicked witnesses by Republicans have undercut their claims. Here's what's happened here. And then they look ahead, you know, to what's happening March 1st. Uh, a budget bill is due that we haven't seen any progress on so far and say, House Republicans are focusing on the wrong thing here. Well, I think certainly I voted against the Mayorkas impeachment. Um, I've, I've voted against some of the uh, actions that I believe were political and, and not uh, that, that really moved the ball forward in trying to help America at this point. I'm in favor of the Ukraine funding. It passed the Senate. I'm hoping it comes to the House floor. Uh, th those are things that I think we need to work on. And, and certainly spending is one of those. Keeping the government open is one of those things, uh, one of those priorities. But uh, this, this doesn't necessarily take away, this investigation doesn't necessarily take away from the resources that are necessary to pass those other very important bills. He thinks that um, the aid package that was passed by the Senate is going to come to the House uh, and potentially get voted on. Dream on, Ken Buck. Dream on. 
But Ken Buck started life as one of the most conservative members of the Republican Party in Congress. Now, um, more and more often, you know, he is the one calling out his colleagues. Democratic Congressman uh, Dan Goldman was on uh, Alex Wagner's show last night, and he has some insights into this whole mess, especially Jim Jordan, as well as the impeachment. Listen to this. The entire uh, weaponization subcommittee that Jim Jordan runs is designed to undermine enforcement against disinformation that could interfere with our elections. That is the whole purpose of that committee, is to have a chilling effect on law enforcement or other government agencies that are trying to stop Russian interference. This is their M.O. They will do whatever they can. And they knew this was false. It was fully debunked in the impeachment investigation that I led in 2019 by witness after witness who was in Ukraine at the time uh, or was in the State Department or the National Security Council. These were Trump administration officials who all said that what Joe Biden did related to the prosecutor general in Ukraine was consistent with official U.S. policy in all of the Western world and that it was bad for Burisma, Hunter Biden's uh, company. Yet they get this uncorroborated uh, 1023 form from the FBI and hold it up as the best example, the best evidence that they have. But I'll tell you one way, Alex, that they may be chilled. And that is now that they know that this information was funneled through Russian intelligence, uh, through the FBI by Russian intelligence, and is part of a Russian disinformation scheme to interfere in our election. If they continue with this investigation, they are opening themselves up to a criminal investigation for conspiring with Russia to interfere in the election. That may be the only thing that keeps them from doing from going forward. Maybe when Donald Trump uh, asks the Supreme Court for immunity, he can get immunity for his fellow Republican Congress people. You know, the ones who Dan Goldman said are now looking at potential criminal liability. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, remember back a million years ago when Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House? First he was anti-Trump and then Trump got elected. And nobody knows what Paul Ryan said the day he went to meet with Donald Trump. But uh, Donald Trump, by all accounts, was ready to get rid of him. And they came out of that meeting and Donald Trump was like, hey, Paul Ryan, he's my guy. He's my guy. Um, yeah, that Paul Ryan who has um, left political life. Uh, He was part of a Washington Post program yesterday, and uh, he talked about the far-right members, which is so ironic, coming from Paul Ryan, who um, kissed the ring to stay on in the Trump administration as speaker. Anyway, he was talking about the far-right members of his party. And what he said I thought was really interesting. Listen to this. What worries me more... And that's just Tucker. That's a symptom of all this is that they're curating sympathy in America and and they're they're helping nurture and develop an isolationist wing in my party and in our country, which I think is very, very dangerous. They're developing, you know, uh, people who want to see NATO reduced or NATO not adhered to. 
Um, obviously, President, former President Trump is pushing this line as well. So what I very much worry about is they're, they're, they're helping curate a line of thought, a school of thought that is isolationist, that is pro-Putin, pro-Russia, pro-tyranny at the end of the day. And that is extremely dangerous for, for, for all democracy, but for us as ourselves, democracy. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest threats to democracy is, you know, he started talking about Tucker. I think the drivel, the misinformation and the disinformation promulgated to countless millions of Americans who believe it's true by Fox Cable. I think that has contributed to this situation that Paul Ryan decries. And why do I mention that? I don't know if he still is. But for quite a while, Paul Ryan was on the board of directors for Fox Cable. So if he really feels that his party's going in the wrong direction, and he knows that at the very least Tucker Carlson had a hand in that, didn't Paul Ryan also have a hand in that? When the whole Dominion um, voting machines soft uh, came down and the Fox is ending up paying nearly a billion dollars for the lies and the misinformation. Paul Ryan came out and said, well, you know, in a board meeting, I told him they shouldn't do that. Really, Mr. Ryan, did you quit? Did you throw a fit? Did you? I, I told him, see, I, I'm a good guy. I told him they shouldn't do that. Okay. Guess Bill Barr isn't the only one trying to put a reputation back together. <sighs> one last thing. Um, tonight, Paddy Vasquez is going to be broadcasting live from Kenosha. It is a fundraiser for Lorenzo Santos, who's running for Congress in Wisconsin. Um, is there, she's going to be joined by another comedian. She's going to be joined by Dina, Nina Martinez Rutherford, who uh, was the first trans woman to serve in Madison, Wisconsin City Hall as an alder there. Um, the fundraiser, which, you know, Kenosha, it's not that far. It's a quick drive over the border. Heck, you can get on a metro train and get off in Kenosha. That's, um, you know, that's one one of the North Line's endpoints. <clears throat> the fundraiser starts at 7, but Patty's going to be at the venue, which is the Wyndham Garden, Kenosha Harborside. Wyndham Garden, Kenosha Harborside. It is tonight. The fundraiser starts at 7 but Patty will be up there doing her show starting at 5 o'clock. It costs $30 to get in. Uh, and if you want to support democracy and have some fun, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the easiest way to support democracy, isn't it? Uh, she's going to be joined by uh, fellow uh, comedian Dwayne Kennedy. And I'm sure it is going to be a delightful time. Go up early. Bother Patty while she's on the air, like, you know, walk back and forth and wave at her, <laughs> bring her candy bars, anything to get through the show. Um, she'll be broadcasting at the Wyndham Garden Kenosha Harborside from five to seven tonight. And at seven o'clock, the fundraiser for Lorenzo Santos for Congress um, takes place. It will be a wonderful time. And um I think Patty and I are going to talk tomorrow. She's going to give us the rundown on 
how things went. So um, please, please, if you're looking for something to do tonight, um, it's really not a, a, a far drive. I mean, let's face it, it takes you an hour to get to Milwaukee and Kenosha's closer. So um, Wyndham Garden, Kenosha Harborside. Uh, the event starts at 7. Patty's going to be up there doing her show st- starting at 5. Or the doors open at 7. I think the show starts at uh, 7.30. Doors open at 7. Show starts at 7.30. Get your facts straight, Joe. Facts matter. And tomorrow we're going to talk to her about it. And uh, see how it went. So go on up there and say hi. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. I have heard rumors that we have a primary election coming up uh, (laughs) in our local area very, very soon. Potentially. As soon as March 19th, you may have questions. God knows I have questions. And who better to answer them than uh, Matt Dietrich, who's the public information officer at the Illinois State Board of Elections. Hello, Matt. How are you today? Hi, John. It's great to be here. Okay. Now, explain Oh, who will the entire state of Illinois be voting on March 19th? Will the ballots yes. be different depending upon where you live? Well, they will be because we have uh, all of the representatives and senators from the Illinois General Assembly will will be. Uh, well, not all the senators, but all the state reps in the Illinois General Assembly. So depending on where you live, uh that's going to be different on your ballot. This is also uh, county officers are elected this year. So depending on what county you're in, it's going to be different. Uh, the only statewide office that's going to be the same throughout the state is uh, for president, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, the bring bring home Chicago referendum, will that only be on city of Chicago ballots? That's only for city of Chicago, correct? Mm-hmm. So you really need to look your ballot over, and it's not like I that I, WCPT we can print one sample ballot and it will reflect everybody's ballot everywhere. No, and in fact, even in um, you know mid-sized to small counties, you will have well over a hundred ballot styles throughout the county, depending on where the the individual voter lives, because, you know, those state representative districts cross various county lines, state senator, the congressional districts. So all of that is going to be different. Now, does this primary, um, how does it work when it, with respect to political parties? Do you have to ask for a Democratic ballot or a Republican ballot? And what do you do if you're an independent? Correct. Um, Now, in Illinois, there is no formal registration with a party. So there is no such thing as a registered Democrat or a registered Republican or a registered independent in Illinois. That's because when you're registered to vote, you don't have to make any record of any party. Um, The only way that party affiliation can be inferred is by which ballot you request at the last primary you voted in. So 
also, like you said, you go to your polling place or your early voting location and you request either a Democratic ballot or a Republican ballot. Now, there are situations where, uh, for example, if there is a referendum question on the ballot in your county or in your municipal, in your city, um, you can ask for a nonpartisan ballot that will only have that on it. So you don't have to take a Republican or Democratic ballot. You'll only be voting on that one question, but that option is available. Now, as far as being an, a quote-unquote independent in Illinois, a lot of people, to a lot of people what that means is I don't vote based solely on party loyalty. I vote based on the candidate. So in Illinois, you can vote every two years in every primary and you can freely switch back and forth. You are never required to take any party's ballot just because you voted that way two years earlier. So that's as close in Illinois as we can get to a voter saying, I'm an independent voter. It's either you don't ever vote in primaries or I voted, you know, I've, I've voted both ways in, in primaries over the years. Um, what if you've decided you want to vote by mail? What do you do? Mm-hmm. You will contact your local election authority. That's generally and how your do you find clerk. your local election authority? You can find them on our website, which is www.elections.il.gov. We have contact information for all 108 local election authorities. Now, for your listeners, uh, if you live in the city of Chicago, your local election authority is the Chicago Board of Election Commissioners, which is Chicago Elections. Um, and in the, uh, if you live in suburban Cook County, it's the Cook County Clerk's Office. And then for the collar counties, it's the county clerk's offices in, okay. in, those, in those counties. And then uh, Illinois has a handful of municipal boards of election. In addition to Chicago, you have Rockford, uh, Galesburg, Bloomington, East St. Louis, and Danville. Not that that's relevant to your listenership necessarily, but mostly it's your county clerk. If you go to our website, you can look up their contact information. If you want to vote by mail, you can go to our website, and we've got we will link you up with your local election authority so you can put in an online application for a vote by mail ballot. If you're one of the people who signed up for that permanent vote by mail, I'm always going to vote by mail, always send me a ballot. Do you have to will you get a primary ballot or is that only for main elections? No, you have a choice when you sign up for the permanent vote by mail list. You have a choice. You can say, always send me a Democratic or always send me a Republican ballot in every primary. Or you can say, I only want to be on the permanent vote by mail list for general elections. And that way, it's a la carte. It's every primary. If you want to vote by mail, you'll put in another application and you'll say, send me a Democratic or send me a Republican ballot. If you feel like you've already uh, signed up for a mail-in ballot, um, when would you expect it to come in the mail? Because the reason I ask that, Matt, is because, I don't know, when the option was first available, however long ago that was, I signed up 
for just send me a ballot. And every election, Matt, as it gets closer and closer, I start to panic. I'm like, oh, something went wrong. I'm not getting my ballot. Where's my ballot? And then right about the time I decide that I have to start making phone calls, it shows up. So when, so that I will not panic this time, when should I be getting my ballot? And then when should I panic? By what date? Well, different jurisdictions are going to send out their ballots differently. I know that a lot of them sent them out right away on February 8th. That was the statutory date for the start of early voting. That was the first day that they are allowed to send vote-by-mail ballots to their voters. I do know that some jurisdictions held off on doing that because you had candidates whose uh, uh, ballot um, appearance was being challenged in court. Didn't so a bunch some, of ballots, didn't, wasn't a hold put on the whole process because ballots had to be reprinted because somebody was getting kicked off the ballot? That happened in Chicago. Uh, there was a judicial candidate, but that, that wasn't an issue of reprinting. That was an issue of reprogramming the, um, the electronic voting systems. A lot of jurisdictions will use their touchscreen voting or electronic options in dur- during the early voting so that they avoid having to print a whole bunch of ballots that may have a candidate on them who gets kicked off the ballot after a court challenge. So uh, you did see that in Chicago where they suspended early, uh, early voting uh, so that they could reprogram their machines and take a candidate off after a, a court took that candidate off the ballot. So oh, so you don't have to worry that people got bad paper ballots that that are no longer reflective of that particular race. Um, I I don't believe so, because I don't think they had sent out those mail ballots yet. But you'd want to check with the Chicago board on that specifically. I don't like to speak for the local authorities because they're the ones who actually have to do all the work when it comes to printing ballots, mailing okay. them setting up their polling places, running things on Election Day. So you just do the fun stuff, like talk to radio hosts? We do that, but we also <laughs> do help the local jurisdictions. We're kind of their administrative backup, and and we do things like uh, assisting with judge training. We're doing a lot of that. We do some testing of voting equipment prior to the election. We're out in some jurisdictions right now doing that, and then um, your One of the things I like to point out, especially in these times when we have um, some, you know, people who who have some doubts about the integrity of the election system, I always like to point out right now is when your local election authority is preparing to do a public test of their voting equipment. They're required to do this within five days of the election. And they'll post on their website when they're having their public testing. Um, Some of them do it via live stream. So you can tune in that way or you can go in in person and watch it. But if you are one of those people who has any doubts, even though we believe you should not have those doubts, (laughs) um, check the website of your election authority and go see how they test this equipment. And you can see how this type of worrying on the part of voters um, this type of talk about rampant voter fraud with the tabulators is completely unfounded. You'll see how careful and precise this 
system is. If somebody wants to uh, work the election, be an election judge, a poll worker of some kind, how do they do that? Contact your local election authority. Go to their website. A lot of them have judge recruiting uh, uh, applications that you can fill out. Now, they may already have their recruits all set up for March 19th. Um, I don't know that for certain. They may still be looking for them, but they will definitely be looking for them for the general election cycle as well. So if you're inclined to do that, it is a really good way to, first of all, it's a good function to do. Um, you do get paid for it, uh, but it also gives you an on-the-ground look at how elections work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and you know, you could, uh, high school students can do this. Uh, they have to have a certain GPA, but it is a terrific way for high school students, if you need service hours, if you want to make a little money, uh, actually you can make for a for a high school student, a fairly substantial amount of money. Uh, yeah, but I was talking really with a woman into. who runs a national organization that encourages people to work the polls. And and she said that in many places you can make like 200 some dollars for the day, which um, I would like, you know, I know that you're with the Board of Elections, but could you please tell the people who pay people for jury duty that they've got to up their game? Because I always get called for jury duty, but I can never work an election because yeah. so far nobody's going to let me broadcast live while I'm doing it. But, you know, I mean, the disparity in pay is just unconscionable. True. Very true. Well, talk to the legislature about that. Okay. Matt, I have a lot more questions, but we need to take a a quick break. I'm talking with Matt Dietrich, who's the public information officer at the Illinois State Board of Elections. More uh, questions and answers about this upcoming primary. Rowan, we come right back after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have a primary election coming up uh, March 19th. And just a little programming note, we are going to stay on the air late that night to see if there are any early returns. Matt is probably one of the people I will try to get to talk to me uh, that night, though I know it is probably the busiest night of the year uh, for him when it's an election night. Um, how quickly do you think... We will get results because I know a lot of times when there's mail in ballots, um, if unless the race is really like, you know, 60 percent, yes, 20 percent, no. And you can call it a lot of times it takes days and even over a week to get results. What does this one look like, Matt? Well, one thing that, that people have to remember now is that in Illinois, if you have mailed your mail-in ballot, as long as it is postmarked no later than Election Day, it can be received and counted up to two weeks after Election Day. So the results that you see on Election Night are unofficial, and they are likely to change. And, you know, they can potentially change significantly. The other thing to keep in mind is that um, since 2020, Now, even going back to, let's say, 2010, 
which is when in Illinois you used to have, if you voted absentee, which is what vote by mail is now, until 2010 you had to have an excuse to do that. But in 2010, the legislature did away with that. And so we saw for about the next four election cycles, vote by mail was about 7% of the total vote. By, tw- by 2018, it was over 9%. Then came 2020 and the pandemic. In the 2020 general election, we had over a third of the vote cast by mail. Now, we're probably not going to see that again this year, but we did see 18% of the vote cast by mail in 2022, which was not a pandemic year. And what that shows is that a lot of people who voted by mail in 2020 liked it and did it again. I'm going to assume that we're going to have at least 18% of the vote cast by mail in this upcoming primary and in the general election, possibly more because now we have this permanent vote by mail list, Joan, that you mentioned earlier. So Mm -hmm. you're looking at potentially 20% or so of the vote being cast by mail. So a portion of that can arrive for two weeks after election day and still be counted. So you can generally, now a lot of times when you watch this on TV, um, the, the stations have people who are analyzing their data. They're looking at where the outstanding vote by mail ballots are most likely to come from because they can track all of that. So they can make pretty accurate projections, but that's all unofficial. And that's all likely to change over the two weeks to follow. And then, of course, at the state board of elections, we really don't deal in any totals until we do the official canvas. And that happens after that two week period. And then we certify the official vote. So, you know, on on election night, I'm not dealing with any kind of numbers coming in. Unlike everybody else, I'm just kind of watching because I'm curious to see what's going on. I'm kind of keeping tabs on things. You know, are there any problems? Um, that type of thing. But voters need to keep that in mind because that's going to become a greater part of the the total vote percentage mm-hmm. is the vote by mail part. And you're always going to have a certain number of those that are trickling in for two weeks after the election. Now, I will say that most of that change comes in that first five days after election day, mm-hmm. because the mail, you know, if you're mailing a, a vote by mail ballot from out of state someplace, um, generally it's going to get to Illinois within that first week. It's pretty rare that you'd have something that's postmarked on March 19th, and then it takes all the way for two weeks after March 19th before it arrives. But, um, those those few days can change pretty significantly. So people need to keep that in mind. And, um, and I'll be surprised if we don't surpass the uh, 18% that we saw in the 2022 general election this year. Well, one thing you should know relatively early is the turnout numbers, right? Because you know when voting closes, I mean, you know, because of the machines, you should have some idea of how many people voted that way and you know how many mail-in ballots you sent out so is turnout a figure that you'll be able to talk about pretty quickly uh that 
Well, that comes up with, again, that's part of the official canvas. So we don't make any kind of, of predictions. However, I will say the Associated Press has a decades-old system of compiling unofficial data from every election authority statewide. Uh, they always do, they'll do a, a turnout projection based on that usually pretty darn accurate. And you'll also hear it from, like, the Chicago board, um, all the county clerks, Cook County clerks. They'll put out their own turnout figure based on the ballots that they've received. Those, again, will be unofficial until they're certified, but they're pretty accurate. And, 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 and Joan, since we're on this topic, um, it, it is kind of interesting to note that there is a huge disparity in turnout between primary elections and general elections. Um, you know, two years ago, our turnout was just under 22% in the primary. And in 2020, 28%. Um, now, 2016, we had a almost a 47% turnout in the 2016 primary. If you'll recall, that was a very, you had both parties had hotly contested uh, mm-hmm. presidential primaries, and that really drove things up. So we, it was almost 47 percent. I can't I, I've gone all the way back to 1960 and cannot find a higher number than that. The The closest was 1980. We had 44 percent in the primary. Um, even that is, you know, you think about turnout, that does seem fairly low. Um, but it's always lower in primaries um, unless there is a really hot race going on um, w- involving both parties, where both parties have, like, let's say, a U.S. Senate candidate or the governor's race with two hotly contested. Then mm-hmm. you may see the primary numbers boost up a little bit. But mostly I think you can expect to see it in the in the 20 percent range. That's that's what you're expecting. Now, I know that you can go to elections.il.gov to check whether or not you are registered. And if you find that you're not, you can register on that same site. Right, Matt? That's correct. You as long as you have to have a driver's license number or uh, a secretary of state issued non-driving ID to use the online portal. But, yes, that's correct. You can do that. And that's going to be open until midnight on March 3rd. So it'll be open the, the Sunday, Sunday, March 3rd, all the way up until 115959. 59. Um, and then the online registration ends. But registration never closes until the polls close. Um, after that date, you can go in and register at any early voting location when you early vote, or you can wait till election day. You can register at your polling place. Just take two pieces of ID that show one's got to show your address and one's got to prove your identity. And if a very confused person like me who signed up for permanent mail-in ballot but doesn't remember if she did all the elections or just some of the elections, would I be able to find out what the heck I'm signed up for? Yes. Um, you probably need to contact your either, depending on who your election authority is, you'd probably need to contact them about that. Um, and you could also, if you haven't received it yet, you could also find out when are you sending them or 
if you you may live in the, one of the jurisdictions that was holding off until their um, certain races may have been challenged in court, and they wanted to make sure that that was right before they printed those vote by mail ballots. Um, but you you can contact your local election authority about that and find out. Thank you. I will probably do that every time there's an election for the rest of my life. Um, Matt Dietrich, thank you so much for being here and answering all of our questions. Um, I hope to talk to you soon, Matt. Thanks for having me, Joan. We are going to take a break for news. We'll be back with more after this. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Joan Esposito, we talk about our not taking away the speech of individuals, when we talk about together. and progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. That was a little test to see if you could tell which sound you were supposed to be listening to. We conduct these tests from time to time just to make sure you are awake and paying attention. I'm very happy uh, to welcome the ACLU of Illinois spokesperson Ed Yanka back to our show. Hello, Ed. How are you? Hello, Joan. I'm well. How about you today? You know, Ed, I love talking to you because I I know you must have good days and bad days, but you always sound like you are just the happiest guy on the planet. And I need that. We all need that, well, Ed. Well, let me say two things, Joan. First of all, you know, I try to be as good uh, as an embryo in Alabama. That's, that's my I'm sorry. daily. I'm sorry, you mean uh, an extra uterine child? Yes, yes, exactly. That's my thing. But, you know, you're, can I just say, because I think sometimes we talk, we talked about this, but, you know, I think sometimes we, we think about the work and the, the project that really all of us are engaged in, right? We're trying to build a, a, a better world, a more perfect union. We're trying to create something here. And, you know, that work is going to have starts and stops. It's, gonna, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be linear. It's not going to be a straight arrow going up. It's never going to be uh, a thing in which is going to be easy. It's always going to be hard. And I think, you know, one of the things that I encourage, you know, others here and around me and, uh, you know, and myself off days is that is that, you know, if you can't find some joy in the struggle, in the actual work for any of this, then I don't know, you know, then I don't know what you do because it's never going to mm-hmm. be perfect and it's never going to be pretty. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, at the beginning of the show, I was letting people know that uh, Patty Vasquez is going to be doing her show live uh, remote from the Wyndham Garden Kenosha Harborside um, from uh, obviously her show is from five to seven. And then um, it's a fundraiser and she's going to be performing. Another comedian's going to be performing. They're raising money for Lorenzo Santos to run for uh, Congress in Wisconsin. Uh, Dina Nina Martinez is going to be there, as I'm sure you know, the first trans woman to serve yes. in Madison, Wisconsin yes. City Hall. And you know what? Uh, that's how it should be. That is really how it should be. I mean, sometimes I think that um, when I interview people, particularly people who've never been on the radio with me before, and I will say something silly or I will say something uh, ridiculously self-deprecating. And some people laugh along with me. Some people are a little bit, you can tell they're, they're just a little quiet, like, 
Is, yeah. Was that supposed to be funny? Am I supposed to laugh? Yeah. Was it was? But you know what? If you can't find joy in this work, then you need to find different work. That's my feeling. I, I think it's true. And you know, can I? Let me just say one other thing because I was just telling this story to some people uh, last week, and I was reminded of this. So. Um, you know, I'm getting to a certain gentle age, shall we just say? <laughs> and uh, be careful, youngster. Um, you know, it was, it was the story I was telling was in 1978. I was in a political science class at the University of Illinois, and I remember the professor in the class teaching the class had just come back from teaching abroad. I think in Sweden, it was one of the Nordic countries. And he made mention of the fact that one of the things they were beginning to talk about there was the freedom to marry for same-sex couples. And, you know, he, we, we talked about it for, for several minutes. And then he just said, how long do you think that will be before, you know, you, you have that or we have that, in the, that right in the United States? And I, you know, a number of people guessed, you know, five years, 10 years, there were all kinds of things. And of course, first of all, always thinking that I was the most funniest guy or the most, the biggest smart aleck in the room. I said, I'll be dead. That was my answer. And, you know, 10 years ago, I saw that bill signed in Illinois. Still very much alive. Like there, there are things that when you step back, there are things that we didn't think were possible that because of work actually do get there. And I think that's the, you know, that's the other thing about all of this work that I think we, we quite regularly have to keep in mind rather than, you know, get caught up in the doom scrolling of the day-to-day nonsense Uh of, of, you know, the jot and tittle of each and every headline. Yeah, and I was I was talking to, I don't know, a, a political historian or something, and I said, you know, what's it going to take to bring the Republican Party back to some semblance of normality? And they said, well, they're going to have to lose, and they're going to have to lose big, and it's going to have to be a shock to them. They're going to have to lose an election just massively. And the person said, well, I, I don't think 2024 is going to be the year. Maybe 2028, but could even be 2032. And I've never forgotten that they said that. And I'm beginning to think it could be 2024. It could be 2024 because I don't think anybody could have predicted how radical and outspoken the Republicans have gotten so quickly, so quickly. And I think that people who may even the people who don't really pay close attention are it's starting to drift into their consciousness. We just had a second medical center in Alabama say that they're going to they're going to pause IVF because of this new rule. And the head of the Supreme Court in Alabama is um, has been, you know, gave interviews on a on a QAnon chat show and talked about his religion. And, you know, what was his his quote was something that. he didn't want to incur the wrath of a holy God by doing yeah. anything to promote. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I've got hope. I really do have hope that 2024 is our year. I, I, but I think that, I think that, but, but, but one of the things is, Joan, remember that even none of this is done on a single election day or with a single vote or with a single bill or a single Supreme Court decision or any of those kinds of things. You know, as we talked about, I think recently, you know, so much of this is what this all really is, is a wake up call to each one of us 
to do whatever role, to play whatever role we have. And whether that's in, you know, whether that's by, by the work we do, uh, you know, the work you certainly do, whether it is about being a contributor or a donor mm-hmm. to something, whether it's about going to a local board meeting, whether it's about just voting or getting five of your friends to vote, whatever that looks like, yeah. we all have something that we can do. Yes. Um, Ed, there's a lot I want to talk to you about today. Let's take a quick break, get it out of the way with, and be back with more with Ed Yonka of the ACLU of Illinois. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Ed Yonka, who represents the ACLU of Illinois um, we often talk about things that are um, in the works. There are some really interesting uh, legal efforts being made on some really interesting topics. Um, Ed, let's start with the, the medical aid in dying bill, which is something that I think a lot of people uh, really don't want to think about and talk about. But for those of us who have seen a, a loved one face a terminal diagnosis and with no hope of anything in their near future but but pain and and debilitation it's really something to think about tell us everything about this yeah you know and i think you i think you you you're right joan none of us want to think about this but i think any of us who have lost a loved one and watched them at the end of their lives would want for them, um, you know, to have kind of a full spectrum of options at the end of their life, uh, including the ability, uh, you know, to have medical aid in dying. So uh, what's what's happening here is is that is that um, uh, a couple of state senators have introduced a bill uh, that would have Illinois join uh, ten states and the District of Columbia. Um, that have authorized medical aid in dying. And the the bill in Illinois pretty much mirrors what you see in other states uh, in that it allows a mentally capable, terminally ill adult um, who has a diagnosis with a prognosis of of living for six months or less uh, obtain a prescription medication uh, from a physician uh, that they can take and when they take that, then the person slips off to sleep and, uh, you know, will uh, die peacefully in their sleep and end and, and their suffering. Um, and so, uh, you know, we think that that along with our our uh, the, our allies in this work, you know, we believe that that, you know, this is another health care option for someone at the end of their life. Um it fits in with our general commitment to bodily autonomy and people making, being able to make their own decisions throughout their lives uh, and, and, and has the right amount of protections in it, which we could talk about, the right amount of protections to ensure that no one uh, is coerced and no one is forced or uh, uh, well, yeah, they, I mean, the, the immediate without, concerns would be a, a situation where there's elder abuse uh, and somebody yes. is coerced yeah. or or yeah. a situation where somebody is simply suffering from depression and, right. um, you know, is not really faced with the, the kind of uh, end of life situation 
that would warrant this. So talk about those protections. Yeah, because I, I think this is the most important thing. And first of all, you know, as I as I indicated before, um, one would have to have a diagnosis of six months or less uh, in order to get the medication and to ask for the medication. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, uh, um, there's there's a process that one goes through, which once you request the medication from a physician, the physician then uh, tells you about other end of life options, including comfort care and hospice and palliative care and pain control. Um, you know, then anybody, then once you've gone through that process, you have a short waiting period, and then you can you have to ask for the medication again in writing before it's it's issued, uh, and and you know so there are all of these processes, uh, you know, just to kind of double check and make sure that no one is being again you know no one is mm-hmm. being forced or coerced. And here's what's interesting in terms of you know if you look at these kinds of protections and having those, um, uh, you know. Uh, you know, if, if, if you have those kinds of protections in place, um, what we see is, is there aren't any examples or credible examples of coercion or abuse or uh, misuse of, of this kind of thing, number one. And number two, and I, this is something I'm going to acknowledge that when we started working on this a number of years ago, I was the most surprised by, which is that it is that more than half of the people who get the medication prescribed to them never use it. Mm-hmm. It is simply the comfort of knowing that they have it that allows them to live out the end of their life. And I think that that is something that, you know, maybe we don't think about just just in terms of, you know, people at that point in their lives and at that point in their disease wanting to have um you know, wanting to have that level of control or, yep. or a sense of some control. And you can see how important that that would actually be. And so, you know, it, th- that's why I, I mean, I think when you when you think about those things, when you think about the family experiences, you know, we see that, you know, when we do polling on this, that about um Seven in 10 Illinois residents actually support adding this to Illinois' law. And actually, an interesting thing, our, our, our allies at Compassions and Choices did a, a study, uh, a survey of doctors, and found that about two out of every three Illinois doctors really want this uh, ability for themselves at the end of their lives. And, oh, and yeah. so, you know, it really tells you, you know, that this is the kind of thing that as people struggle with, you know, family members and, and, and loved ones, uh, you know, facing uh, these kinds of illnesses, that this is something that they really want. And, you know, we, we have, um, it's, it's interesting, the, the uh, ACLU first put forth uh, a discussion on this bill back in the mid to late 1990s, just after uh, Oregon became, Washington became, no, Oregon became the first state to, to, to put it into effect in 1997. It was, uh, in 1998, the Illinois legislature actually held a subject matter hearing on it. There was never any written legislation that never moved any further. Um, and you know, when you think about 27 years later, I think we're, we're there, you know, we're at that moment, 
a lot of there's been a lot of support across the board for uh, the measure. And I think that it's something that, you know, people, as you said, when you started about talking about this, Joan, we don't really want to think about this. We don't really want to wrestle with this question a lot. But on the other hand, uh, you know, many of us and, and many of our loved ones and family members are going to face this these mm-hmm. decisions and 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 you know i think many of us want to make sure that those folks the people in our lives and other people have all of the you know all of uh, the the um options that they they want uh in in terms of making these choices ed how much do you think the fact that we are seeing an aging population uh to a degree we haven't seen for a very 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 long time and the people themselves, like in my demographic, who are facing potentially these decisions down the road and the generation, the, you know, the so-called sandwich generation, they're trying to, you know, shepherd their kids through life. And yet at the same time, they've got declining parents and they see the, the suffering that their parents are going through. I think that there's a possibility we are more receptive to this now, uh, right now, because so many families are seeing the horrors up close and personal. I think that's right, Joan. Um, You know, I suspect that not unlike many people, you know, I, I watched both of my parents deteriorate before they passed away. Um, You know, my mother, was suffering with dementia, but actually asked about uh, ending her life at different times uh, in her final weeks. And, you know, I think that when you experience that, and and so many people have, this isn't just, you know, our own, you know, I think you, you think about that anecdotally, with uh, so many people who, 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 you know, go through those circumstances, I think people have a keener and stronger sense um, that these kinds of options are really necessary uh, for people uh, and really need to be, you know, kind of lifted up and, and, and made available. Uh, and, and you're right. I think as we, you know, as we, we've gone through it with our parents, you know, many of us, as, as, as we, um, you know, not you, cause you're much younger than I am, but as we, as we begin to age, you know, begin to look at what this looks like for ourselves. I, I mean, I, I think about, you know, uh, uh, what we want in terms of an ending. I, I think these are, are issues that, just make people say that people should have options. People should be able to exercise those options for themselves without it being controlled by someone else and, and, and in consultation with their doctors. And I think those are the things that, to me, really, you know, as I talk to people and, you know, we hear from people from around the state, that's the kind of thing mm-hmm. that, that sort of resounds over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's an issue it's an issue of control because when you're really, really, really sick, uh, you can really start to feel helpless. And, yeah. and, and knowing that you have this power, um, I think it, there's, just, there's just nothing that can be more beneficial 
to somebody. And as you said, what you've seen in the statistics is that a lot of people who even go so far as to get the drugs never use them. But it's sort of a safety net, knowing that if things really get worse than they are now, this is something that is an option for me. I I just don't think that you can... You can uh, overstate that. And maybe once we get this kind of bodily autonomy, um, we could, you know, in more states, uh, allow women to be able to make decisions with their doctor without the government being a part of that. Well, too. now, don't go getting crazy, Joe. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but isn't, I mean, this is this is all interrelated, right? I mean, this is about. Uh, these issues of bodily autonomy. It's, it's about us being able to make, you know, our own life choices and, and exercise our own options and decide and navigate this world, you know, in our own, you know, according to our own values in our own way. And that's what, that's what this all really comes together as. And I, I think this is, you know, this is just another one of those things. I, I will just say, um, you know, uh, 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 given the, the, um, you know, the way that this is as has moved forward, you know, it's just really exciting to to see, um, you know, the fact that we've got, you know, we've got legislators and 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 folks in Springfield who are really willing to engage in this discussion and really willing to, you know, move these uh, move these measures forward. As far as you know, has the reception been positive um, very positive, lukewarm positive, not positive at all. Positive, I would say. There's work to do. You know, it's it's a legislative process. There always is, and people have questions, and they, you know, they 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 want to, um, you know, they want to, ask, you know, they want to, uh, uh, they want to ask questions. They want to dig into details. They want to know more uh, about about uh, the way in which. Um, this would, you know, these, these, the, this would work in particular. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think the, the reception, uh, this is, uh, Compassions and Choices and, and the ACLU and some other partners have been talking to legislators about this for, uh, uh, for a couple of years now. Um, uh, Assistant Majority Leader Linda Holmes has, has picked up the measure and introduced it in the Senate along with Laura Fine. And, you know, th- th- what I will say is, is that like, like even just having informal meetings and talking to people, uh, there just have been these, this, this sort of, uh, I think, understanding on the part of many that it's time. I think there are others who say, you know, I've faced this situation. I understand it. I have some questions, but I'm amenable. So I think there's a lot of positive signs. And, and I think, as is, as is always the case, um, you know, there's a legislative process. That process includes lots of dialogue and hearings and uh, changes and, and conversations. And, you know, that that has now begun with the introduction of the bill. And I think we're hopeful that it will lead, as it often does, to to actual passage. Well, um, let us know if we need to um, fill out witness slips. Because yes. the CPT audience is, is ready, Ed Yanka. We need to take a break. Uh, Ed Yanka of the ACLU of Illinois will be back with me right after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Ed Yanka of the ACLU of Illinois. 
Um, Ed, um, a few weeks ago, I got an email from Planned Parenthood saying um, there are certain candidates who we feel have um, embodied the ideals and the, and have worked hard for Planned Parenthood. Here's our list of it wasn't it was endorsements, but it wasn't like. Um, you know, we think their politics is this way or that way. It was just, we think these people are great. We've worked with them. They've done great things for us, and you should know their names. Does the ACLU do anything like that? We don't. Um, you know, we believe, and, and you know, our, I, I think there's, there's always, you know, different approaches, different theories. Um, th- we're, we're uh, uh, you know, We've always believed that our strength lied in being in not engaging in electoral politics, but in focusing our efforts on policy making. We think that the Constitution and protecting the Constitution should not be partisan, should not be electoral. It ought to be the work of everybody. And at the end of the day, you know, on many issues, uh, you know, we we draw votes from both sides of the aisle, whether it's in Congress or whether it's in uh, the state legislature um, or or to a lesser extent, obviously, in city councils uh, around the state of Illinois. And so, you know, we think if we don't engage in that electoral process, uh, it's not that there's anything wrong with anybody who does, but that it, it provides us a platform to simply be information providers and uh, sources of information uh, that don't have sort of a finger in the pie of, of politics and, and, and elections. Uh, and so it's something that we've never done. And it's interesting uh, I'll, I'll just say that it's interesting that when we do like, you know, occasionally we do focus groups or surveys of our members. And it's actually one of the things that ACLU members value the most is that we don't engage in those kinds of uh, electoral uh, um, skirmishes uh, and are willing then to stand up and challenge anybody uh, who's in office, you know, as, as we, we, as we, I think, talked often about the number of times we sued Donald Trump, but we've sued Joe Biden and we sued Barack Obama before Trump. And, you know, that is really our role and not to be uh, in the milieu of the, the electoral um, uh, uh, pr- uh, program itself. I'm going to ask you a question that sounds like snark, but then I will explain myself. When the ACLU takes on these matters, who at the ACLU decides what the Constitution is? Because we've seen a Supreme Court, Ed, that seems to be able to make the quote-unquote Constitution fit any kind of partisan decision that they choose to make. Um, you know, whether you know, they say they're originalist or contextualist, but it doesn't matter. You get the feeling they decide on a partisan way, how they want an issue to uh, to fall out, and then they twist the Constitution to justify it. So who at the ACLU decides what the Constitution says? <laughs> well, th- th- this, you know, Joe, someday, I, I, and I'm serious about this, 
someday I'm going to come up and we're going to, we should sit in the studio face to face and we could talk about case selection and all that for just an hour. Um, because it is, it is, I, it really is one of the most nuanced and, 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 and complex things that we do. But let me start with this. Our decisions about taking on the, the matters that we do and deciding when and if we sue is based solely on national policies that are adopted and then either uh, uh, edited or changed at the state level. So in other words, the national board adopts a policy that says we believe the First Amendment requires A, B, and C. The Illinois affiliate can do one of two things. We can simply agree with that. Uh, and and we follow that same that same pattern or we can alter it. Uh, Our board can vote to alter it in order to do that. And then uh, usually, you know, the the legal staff in consultation with other uh, with other um, uh, staff members at the Illinois affiliate uh, are my colleagues on the legal staff are, are nice enough every once in a while to even ask me what I think about whether <laughs> or not we should pursue a legal matter. Uh, and, you know, unburdened as I am uh, with any legal uh, uh, training, um, I always have a viewpoint. Uh, and so, you know, it, 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 that pro- we go through that process here the same way our colleagues do at National. Um, there's some oversight built in in terms of our general counsel uh, who, who, you know, help in terms of the structure of the decision or thinking about the approach and thinking about the legal arguments that are made. And those conversations, and it's really interesting when you, when you mentioned the Supreme Court, those conversations are almost always informed by the fact that we have a very different Supreme Court today than we did 20 years ago. And so it is, it is, you, one has to be cognizant when one thinks about taking a case into federal court, for example, that that, that 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 you could get a a good quick ruling at the local at a district court level, but it's the kind of thing that could go up on appeal to the appellate court or ultimately to the Supreme Court, and you don't want to make bad law. And so there are a lot of factors that go into this. There are a lot of things that that are um, you know that that are part of the analysis, but at the core of it. You know, what you what you always have to maintain is a commitment to really pushing uh, and trying to advance the principles and policies uh, that have been adopted on behalf of the ACLU and have been in place for, you know, in some cases, many, many years. So you you try to decide this with a group of legal scholars getting input from all of the local statewide ACLUs. Ed, with the the Supreme Court we have now, um, which is at best partisan and at worst corrupt, would there be a time when the ACLU would say, well, we think what just happened isn't right, but we're not going to take this case on because it's going to cost a lot of time and money, and we know when it gets to the Supreme Court that they will rule against us? Would that ever enter into the I equation? I can't think of an instance when it when when that is the so, so there's a couple of ways of thinking about this, Joan. I can't think of an instance where that's been the case, but I will tell you that I think it's going to increasingly be more of a reality. Um, I, I think if you and, and just thinking about it, and I haven't had this example has not come up recently, but um, you know I think if you look at at what's happening around issues of 
religious liberty and what it mean, what religious liberty means, where, you know, somehow a, 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 a school coach, a, a football coach at a public school praying with state legislators in the middle of a football field uh, is not coercion for the students. Right. Um, and the court just says that, like, I think I think that may affect how people think about taking you know, cases around prayer or uh, religious affiliation or religious practices or things of that nature. I think I think I think those are very real possibilities uh, as we move forward. So, I, again, I haven't seen it, but I can imagine that it's the kind of thing where you might think about a fix. You might think about an approach uh, to resolving some of those problems that don't involve the federal courts and the chance of a collision uh, with this particular Supreme Court. Yeah. I mean, because let's face it, I mean, even though ACLU fights the good fight, you have a limited number of lawyers, you have a limited amount of funds, and you you can't you can't take on everything that comes across the desk, I would imagine. You, you can't, although and, and I'm glad that you came back to this because it, it does. I, I will say on this and I think I feel more strongly about this today, 25 years after I started this job than I did with the day I walked in the door. There are some times, Joan, when you just have to take up the fight. And even if you lose, even if you aren't successful, you have to do it. Mm-hmm. It is, it, 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 you know, there are things that are important. Uh, there, there are issues that are, that matter to people and their lives. And if you don't take up those things, you know, for an organization like us, us often, we're the organization of last resort, right? If we're not going to do it, there's nobody else who is. And so, therefore, if we don't, nobody will. I think we have to. And, and, and that's the place where I think it gets a little, you know, I think for me, sometimes it gets, you, you, I find myself just struggling a little bit because you know that the possibility of, of something not working out is, is out there. But, you know, every once in a while, you, you know, you, you just have to do it. I, I mm-hmm. was reminded, I was reminded recently, you know, and it's not this Supreme Court, but just just the overwhelming hurdle that we faced, you know, I think it was uh, I think it was now more than a decade ago. We filed a case against the Chicago Police Department over the way they deploy police officers. Right. In, in the fact that if you live on the north side and somebody tries to break into your garage or you find evidence of that an officer will show up. But if you live on the south and west side and there's actually a violent crime happening in your neighborhood, there's a chance you may not get someone to respond to a 911 call. That's been historically true. The CPD has known it. We filed a lawsuit on behalf of an organization from the Austin neighborhood. And the thing of it is that suit ultimately CPD collected the information so poorly that ultimately we had to settle the suit just to get them to try to collect the information better. They've really never been able to do that particularly well. It's been a very disappointing thing. But that's why, you know, after decades and decades of police superintendent after police superintendent promising to fix that problem, that fight was worth fighting, even though we knew it would be hard and might not be successful in the end. And so I think I think that's where that's why I say we could we could literally talk about this for for, (laughs) uh, you know, for for hours on end, because each and every individual circumstance that comes in the door 
is one that you have to assess for a whole variety of factors. And sometimes it may be that it's just the right time to push the envelope or to push the button on the issue and to move it forward, even if in that moment, uh, you know, you, you, you aren't successful. And I do believe that recently the Chicago City Council has begun that, talking about this whole issue and requiring uh, the police department to um, to give them to do an assessment of on staffing and to bring to the older people, you know, the, the report. How many cops do you yes. have in Lincoln Park? How many cops yep. do you have in Englewood? You know, and because you can't make decisions without the data. And uh, so I think that 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 what your effort has kept the pressure on and the, the that fight is still continuing, you know, so I guess not everything has to be a win to be a success is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, gosh, that was very wise of me, wasn't it? I think I'll write that down. <laughs> uh, let's take a break, Ed Yanka, and be back with more talk about the ACLU right after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Ed Yanka of the ACLU of Illinois. And uh, Ed, um, I was really uh, surprised and pleased to see that the the speaker for the big ACLU luncheon, which I believe is uh, coming up pretty quick in March, is Busy Phillips. Uh, I think she's she has been so terrific um, when it comes to activism. And for those of you who don't know her, she's been on uh, she was on Cougar Town. She's on Girls Five Eva. I think I don't know. I always get the yes. name of that one yes. wrong. Yes. But she's also been, I don't know um, at what point she was brought in to be a part of this campaign, but the ACLU got behind a campaign. I think the ACLU was behind it, the You Know Me, and because this was yeah. the argument that people um, were unclear on to whether or not to support abortion rights because nobody knew anybody who had ever had an abortion. And so the campaign was You Know Me and women who had had abortions came forward and spoke about them publicly. You think you don't know somebody who's uh, had an abortion? Well, you know me. And then, you know, and then she told her story. And she, you know, she has not backed down from this issue. Yeah, we are we are we are really, really, really excited because, um, you know, the, the, first of all, uh uh, in addition to the work that the ACLU has done with her on on that campaign more recently, um, she's officially come on board as as an ACLU artist ambassador, someone who goes out across the country speaking out uh, about issues for the ACLU. Uh, she is, um, I should also say, she was just in the recent Mean Girls uh, movie. Um, uh-huh. So uh, people may have seen her there as well. And interestingly enough, she was actually born in Oak Park, and her great-grandfather ran for Congress in the 1920s as a socialist in huh. Illinois, um, which, which I only learned because I've gotten a chance to, to talk to her and get to know her a little bit in advance of the lunch, ACLU lunch on Friday, uh, March the 1st, so a week from tomorrow. Uh, and, you know... In some, in many ways, um, 
she is the ideal speaker for our lunch this year uh, because the, the 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 two things we really want to try to do with this lunch is to get by you know this idea of people just I, I, I suspect I, I say I'm about to say this to you Joan you must feel <laughs> like you go home with this every day this sort of sense of doom and gloom that people have this you know with everybody telling us that we have to be exhausted you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, I, I I I this is a little bit of where we started but I have to say when the New York Times had the headline the other other day about opposition to, uh, you know, the MAGA movement is exhausted. I don't know who they're talking to. The people that I know. Maybe they're finding uh, that information out at all the diners that they send their reporters to. We're at a diner. We're at a diner. We're at a diner. We're at a diner. Yeah, I'm not feeling it. So in any event, um, you know, so so we, we have, first of all, we have, there's this Illinois connection. Uh, it's somebody with an incredible amount of energy and 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 a, just a lovely, lovely person. But I think one of the things that she really speaks to, and I think it's really, uh, it, 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 which is really critical, is you know, she did not see herself as an activist. She did not see herself as being the person who, you know, would be out front talking about her own life experiences related to abortion and reproductive rights. She did not see herself as being this. And yet that's the role she's ended up playing. And it's created this opportunity and this structure for lots of other people. And so, you know, one of the things we really want to underscore at the lunch in in many ways is, you know, for all we hear around the country, man, you know, you can't pick up at what we started talking about Alabama, right? We we could talk about the trans cases out of Idaho and and other uh, Tennessee and the, you know, the drag cases. We talked about all of these things. None of that is happening here in Illinois. And you know what? That's not an accident. It's not a simply a happenstance. It's not because Chicago is here as compared. There are major cities in all those other uh, states. The reason it isn't happening here is because people have done the work. Because everybody has found something that they can do, whether it's as simple as going and voting for candidates who share their values, whether it's. You know, whether it is it, whether it is, you know, being part of an organization, whether it's going to a march, whether it's joining a particular effort, whatever that is, like all of those are things that people have done and they have been willing to do and they continue to do them. And it's making a difference. So, you know, what what I, I will say, if I would encourage, you know, there's still time for those who would be interested to, to go to our website at aclu-il.org, click on the ACLU lunch. You can buy a ticket to the lunch and come and hear Busy Phillips, which I will just say again, having talked to her and engaged with her, I think is going to be fun. But it's also a chance to hear about the things that we've done and the work that's in head of a, ahead of us and how we can do it if we work together. Joan, we're the first state in the union to end the use of money bond. Mm. I just want to stop for a second. We yeah. are the first state in the union to end the use of money bond. 
Our friend Sharon Mitchell, the public defender for Cook County, is going to come and talk about that, but how that effort can be replicated for lots of other systemic change we need around policing reform and criminal legal system reform. You know, th- this is the kind of thing that if we if we if we gather together, if we if we commit to something and say we're going to fight for this, we're going to work, we're going to do it. I'm going to do something. I may, you know, you know, I, I mean, geez, I may go way out of my comfort zone and talk on the radio at some point, um, <laughs> you know. But we can all find some role that we can play in this, even if it's just talking to a neighbor, even if it's just talking to a friend. And I think those are the things that that. You know, I hope people will come to this event and then come away feeling like, oh, my gosh, I am really part of something that is so much larger than myself. But the thing I do is important. The thing I do really mm-hmm. matters. And that's what, you know, that's what we, we want. And, and um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing from Busy and, and hearing her uh, message about this. Because, you know, as she says, that is kind of her story. And, and so we're really, really looking forward to this. And for people who uh, never watched any of the shows that she was in, one of the ways that, you know, I started paying attention to her, she was one of the first people to really embrace Instagram. And she acquired a massive following because she didn't she didn't use it to promote her work. Uh, She didn't use it to sell products. She just was one of the first people to post about her real life in the way it really was in a non-idealized fashion. You know, um, whatever was going on in her life, good, bad or indifferent, the kids being great, the kids being awful. Um, she was she was she she got a following and she created, you know, because Instagram, a lot of it, everybody's always talking about how. Um, you know, everybody only shows their best self and their best life and makes sure they have the right filters and the right makeup so everything looks perfect. And she was like, no, this is she was one of the first people to embrace it. And she showed her real life warts and all. And um, I picked up her memoir. I don't know if you've ever read that, Ed. Yes. But, you know, I've read, yes. I've read a number of celebrity memoirs, and they're usually funny and breezy and anecdotes. And then I met this famous person, and then I met this famous person. Her memoir is the story of her life. And let me tell you, it was harrowing, some of the stuff yeah. that she yeah. lived through. It was harrowing. And I kept... You know, I picked it up. I was like, oh, she's so funny. She's so great. This is going to be. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this woman survived. You know, can I, first of all, I have to tell you, my my colleagues here uh, who follow her, you know, follow her on Instagram. We were going to talk to her on Zoom a, a week or so ago, which was the first time we connected with her before the lunch. And and that morning. Um, they all laughed because they had seen her Instagram post from that morning 
you know, and she's just in a sweater. Her hair is sort of a kilter, and, you know, she's, <laughs> she's just being herself and talking about what's going on. And they said, you know, then you get on this Zoom, and there she is. It's just that's her. That's who she is. And it was so real and so, um, you know, so much fun mm-hmm. in so many ways. It, 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 you're, you're right. It'll be, it'll be a really fascinating thing. And, you know, it's so much different than us than a journalist or a, or a legal professor or, you know, law professor or someone like that. Uh, to have to have her, I, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I I think it'll be delightful. And uh, give the web address again so uh, people yes. can buy tickets. And where it's downtown, it's, right? Uh, yeah, thank you. It's so it is Friday, March the first at noon at the Chicago Hilton, which is located uh, at 720 South Michigan Avenue. Um, you can go to our website at www.aclu-il.org uh, to, if you're interested in exploring tickets, I think there's a virtual option. Yes, there is a virtual option as well. Um, I will apologize to everybody. I know you said you make self-deprecating remarks, Joan. I'm just going to be candid for people. The one thing they should all know is, I am the MC of the event, so they are likely to get a lot of me. That will probably discourage a few people, but I hope not everybody. Um, and they get to see Busy Phillips. Uh, so, you know, it, it, should be, it should be great fun. You know, I'm so glad that you guys are doing um, an Internet option because, you know, Jan Schakowsky has her big luncheon. You guys have these big luncheons. And because of what I do and where and how I do it, Uh, I can't I can't do these things. And I didn't realize that that was even a possibility. So I am definitely uh, going to be in your interwebs audience that day. Thank you. And maybe um, maybe sometime after that, we can get together again and uh, and talk about how the lunch went and all the other things that the ACLU is involved in. Mr. Yonka. yeah, and I'm looking forward to. I think in addition to the in addition to the medical aid and dying bill, we have some other things happening in the legislature. I will look forward to talking with you about. Perfect, and and maybe I'll give you a media trainer critique of your you? MC yeah. duties. I don't know. I love that. I love that. That's because I don't get a lot of critique from people around here. They tend to just generally let me go. So I could probably use some constructive criticism. <laughs> well, I, I doubt that. I doubt that very much. But, but trust me, if it's deserved, I will. I will. I'll be gentle, but I will. Oh, I will oh, that's quite. You, know, you add, don't add, have to be add, gentle. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ed, for being here. It is always such a hoot to talk to you. Um, And um, one last time, uh, Ed, is uh, Andy, do we still have Ed? Um, Give me the web address again so I can sign up for that. www.aclu-il.org. Okay, dot org. Okay. Thank you very much, Mr. Yonka. Pleasure to talk to you. Take care. All righty. We are, oh my goodness, time for news again. We are, (laughs) because I stay so on top of this. We are going to take a break for news. And um, I'm actually going to share some stuff with you that I haven't been able to get to as of yet. Just some fun stuff. And uh, we'll be right back after this. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
couple of big things happened um, over the last couple of days that I wasn't able to share with you. And I want to share with you now Um, when, you know, President Biden is um, he's still in California. I think, well, maybe by now he's on the way home, but he's been in California for a couple of days, uh, did a bunch of fundraisers, but also spoke at UCLA. And uh, that was where he announced this um, federal uh, student loan forgiveness. What better place than to announce it at at a college? As you'll know, Biden tried to get uh, debt forgiveness for students, and it was uh, struck down by the Supreme Court. He has not left it alone, though, and uh, has gone on to Plan B. But um, this is going to be a really significant debt relief measure for people who had uh, government loans to finance their higher education. Um, President Biden talked about how the benefits of forgiving student loans were not just personal, but also affected the larger community and helped hardworking American families. Listen to this. This is kind of relief can be life changing for individuals and for their families. And it's good for the economy as a whole by freeing millions of Americans from the crushing debt of student loan programs. It means they can finally get on with their lives instead of getting their lives being put on hold. They can think about buying a house, starting a home, starting a family, having a family future that they can enjoy or saving for the family's future. Saving and being away a little bit of money. I'm proud to have been able to give borrowers like so many of you the relief you earned. I promise you I'm never going to stop fighting for hardworking American families. President Biden also talked in more detail about the student loan forgiveness and how it was going to work. Listen to this. I'm proud to announce our SAVE plan. We are immediately canceling the debt loans for over 150,000 borrowers, nearly six months ahead of schedule. Starting today, we're canceling student debt for borrowers who are enrolled in the SAVE plan and have been paying student loans for as little as 10 years. If they took less than, if they borrowed less than $2,000, it's forgiven. $12,000, excuse me. It's, the loan is forgiven. This action will be a huge help to graduates of community college and borrowers of smaller loans, putting them back on track faster for debt forgiveness than ever before. This builds on other progress I've made in canceling student debt for close to 4 million Americans through various actions. For example, we fixed what was called the Public Service Loan Program, Loan Forgiveness Program which was designed to make sure that school teachers, firefighters, law enforcement officers, social workers, public servants get their student loans forgiven if they make payments for 10 years in a row and uh, 10 years of public service at the same time. And when I took office, there were 7,000 public servants who had taken advantage of this program and had it forgiven. But thanks to the reforms we made in the program, now there are nearly 800,000 have had their debts forgiven. 800,000 have had their debt forgiven. You know, um, this is important because people who are saddled with a lot of student loan debt, even if they get good-paying jobs, it's very difficult to save enough money to buy a house. I'm sure you've seen the statistics over the last several years how um, there are, in the younger generations, much less home buying, and they wait longer before they buy homes. 
This is something that affects the economy as a whole. Um, something else I didn't get a chance to share with you. Uh, Governor Pritzker made his State of the State address. <laughs> and um, he, um, for a portion of it, he used it as an opportunity to remind people that um, part of the reason why we don't have immigration reform uh, in this country right here, right now, is because Donald Trump told Republicans not to vote on it. So um, they're refusing to vote on it. And all the reforms that they claimed that they couldn't live without are going down the drain. Yeah, uh, he may not be a presidential candidate, but he's a pretty darn good surrogate for Joe Biden. Listen to Governor Pritzker. I am sure that when I leave the podium today, there will be some who will walk outside this chamber looking for a microphone so they can start yelling about sanctuary cities and immigrants taking our tax dollars. I hope that the press covering those statements will ask these politicians one important question. Did you or did you not support the federal immigration bill that the White House agreed to with Senate Republicans? The White House announced a bill that was supported by top Republican leadership in the Senate. And then within hours, hours, Republicans who had helped write the legislation announced that they were suddenly against the legislation, including most glaringly every single Republican member of the Illinois congressional delegation. Why did this happen? Why did every single Republican run away from something that they claimed they desperately want? Because Donald Trump told them to, and they're afraid of him. That bill would have helped Illinois. It would have provided money and resources that we don't normally receive as a state far from the southern border. Maybe some Republicans find it hard to put country over party, but our obligations to the people we represent supersede the letter after our names. <clears throat> there were some, um, he, you know, he, he kind of poked the bear when it came to Republicans. There was some grumbling, some booing, but there was also a lot of um, very positive support. And you know what? He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Real quick, I want to uh, once again remind you that our 5 to 7 p.m. host, Patty Vasquez, is going to be broadcasting live from the Wyndham Garden, Kenosha Harbor side. Uh, she is there because once she wraps up her radio show, she is going to be one of the people hosting a fundraiser for Lorenzo Santos, who's running for Congress in Wisconsin. She's going to be joined by comedian Dwayne Kennedy and uh, Dina Nina Martinez is going to be there. The first trans woman to serve in Madison, Wisconsin's uh, City Hall. It is going to be a lovely evening. It is going to be fun as politics is always best when it's fun, don't you think? So it costs uh, $30. Doors open at 7. Show starts at 730 um, if you're looking for something to do, Kenosha is really close. You can even jump on the Metro North Line. And if you get the right train, uh, it, um, Kenosha is the last stop. It is, and it's also not a, not a very long drive either. Wyndham Garden, Kenosha Harborside tonight. Um, you can see Patty and Dwayne Kennedy and they will be raising money for Lorenzo Santos. 
$30 is the cost to get in. Plus, there's going to be a silent auction. So I hope that um, some of you will be able to get up there and have some fun. I'm going to talk to Patty about it uh, tomorrow on my Friday show. Um, let's take a break. When we come back, somebody that I've, uh, uh, an organization I've spoken about before on this show that's really important, and this is the time of year to think about it. We're going to talk about Camp Kupagani when we come back after this. Hey, Google, play WCPT. Streaming Chicago's progressive talk from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You hear the lovely Tom Hartman uh, talking on our radio station about the benefits of uh, Camp Kupagani. Well, we are joined now by the owner of Camp Kupagani. Kevin Gordon is here. Kevin, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for thanks for having me on. Um, for those people who uh, missed some of the Tom Hartman spots that we've been running, explain how Camp Kupagani is different from uh, the typical sort of summer camp experience. Um, yeah, we're we're uh, we're like the other camps, but we're also not like the other camps. <laughs> um, the uh, we're in t- we're intentionally uh, bring uh, kids of different backgrounds and ethnicities, religions, all that together. Um, give them the tools to to deal with that, and then kind of um, within the bounds of kind of regular camp, uh, like we kind of celebrate and appreciate difference. So we uh, kind of create the world that we uh, that we wish we saw everywhere. Yeah, um, but it's but it still um, has the fun stuff that people expect from camp as well, right? Oh yeah, for example, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we, uh, you know, we have uh, like canoeing, rock climbing, swimming, playing in the lake, team building, all the great camp food, living in cabins, <laughs> nights under the stars, all all the good things. But uh, but then uh, at the same time. Um, you know, in a in a deliberate, in a deliberately kind of inclusive environment. Do you? Uh, what area do you draw your campers from? About sixty percent. Uh, I would say about fifty percent of our campers come from um, Chicago, Chicago land, so Chicago or uh, neighboring cities or towns. About twenty five percent are regional, and then about twenty five percent are different states or different countries. You know, um, whenever kids are at camp, they get to know their campmates, their cabin mates, all the people who are involved in the activities that they like. But you specifically work uh, and describe yourselves as a multicultural camp. You really work to have a balanced, diverse crowd. Do you have um, do you spend some of the time? Just like, you know, I don't know whether it's around a campfire or whatever, but just talking where people can talk about their, you know, the kids can say, well, you know, this is where I live. This is what my life is like, that kind of thing. Yeah, we have we have some, um, especially in the early couple, couple days of camp, we have some uh, specific activities like diversity show and tell and like where, where people are um, encouraged to celebrate and appreciate, um, you know, whatever speaks to them about their identity or background. Um, so there's some specific things. Um, and then we also find kind of probably the most powerful aspects, like those are great, uh, and also the, the even more powerful aspect is just 
you know, living, working, and playing together mm-hmm. with someone who you wouldn't normally have done that. Um, one of my one of my always great memories is well, probably about. 10 years ago now, um, we had a group of girls that there's no way in their, in their regular lives would they have encountered each other. You know, like there's a, there was a white girl, there was an Indian American, there was a black American. So there's like these four girls of varying backgrounds and, uh, you know, they just hit it off <laughs> because, like, once you get beyond kind of the surface things, you're like, oh, wow, we are just best friends forever. And then they would, you know, call me, <laughs> call, me call me during the winter during a sleepover at, like, 11, 11 p.m. I'm like, Kevin, we're doing this. I'm like, oh, that's good. <laughs> and then they even, a couple of them went to school, went to college together, and yeah. and that never would have happened, but for the intentionality of, of Kupagani bringing them together, so. And from everything that I've read and everything that I've seen and experienced, one of the best ways to break down um, any kind of prejudice is to get to know somebody. I think a lot of, well, I can't say a lot, but I certainly there are some white people who um, have a lot of negative ideas about black and brown people because they've never... They've, those people have never lived in their neighborhoods. Those people uh, didn't send kids to school with their kids. Those people weren't on the same jobs that, that they were working. It's hard to see somebody as fully human if you've never, ever come across them. I think that that kind of, you know, regardless of whether or not anybody becomes best friends for life, it just, I think it's humanizing. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely, yeah, that's a great way to put it. I mean, it's whether it's, um, it's conscious or unconscious biases, like we all have these these ideas of those who we don't encounter regularly, um, whatever it is. So we're getting ideas from TV or media or whatever. And like you said, it's like only really after you you kind of live and hang out and 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 be with people who are different, whether it's a different race, different ethnicities, different religion, different uh, gender, different gender identity. Um, it, it's so impactful when you actually, you know, you have this friend. This friend isn't so-and-so of whatever stereotype. They are this friend, period. Um, so, you, so it's really the only way to kind of get beyond uh, those kind of limitations that we otherwise encounter in life. How do you um, respond to people who either say to you or let you know that, oh, you know what? I just want my kids to have fun. I don't want anything preachy. Is it preachy, Kevin? Oh, definitely not preachy. (laughs) Um, And it's fun. Like, to your point, it's it's summer camp. You know, so it's fun in the sun. It's, you know, it's rock climbing. It's all these things. We, We, it is definitely, I would say, it definitely is more... Uh, challenging, perhaps, um, because, you know, when something is totally um, the same and not much different, then, they're, you know, it, it's great. But it's like it's like having a diet of, you know, just like sugar and <laughs> donuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, this seems awesome. <laughs> These donuts are delicious, especially the jam-filled ones. I love those. <laughs> um, I'm a cream-filled not, girl myself. 
right. <laughs> but if you're having just that, you know, if you're having cream-filled donuts every day, um, you know, in, in a few years, you're not going to be um, a very healthy human. Um, and so um, when we... Um, when when we have when we it can embrace the difference, um, it can be a challenge at first because you're getting past these things that might be initial barriers. But then you grow to kind of be like, oh wow, this is this is amazing, and then the, and and it's, and it's even better than um, than you would than you would give it credit for beforehand. Where is the actual campground? We are ninety ninety minutes west of uh, west of O'Hare Airport, so we're in northwest Illinois, about thirty five minutes southwest of Rockford. And um, as far as the sessions go, do people go all summer long, or can you go for shorter amounts of time? How does that work? The mechanics of it. Yeah, we have minimum uh, two-week sessions. Um, so we have three two-week sessions. So the minimum that you come to, the, the sessions start on a Sunday afternoon and end uh, two weeks later on a Saturday morning. Uh, we find that about about two-thirds of our campers come for a single two-week session, and then about a third come for, for, come for multiple sessions. Um, I find that like a, it's interesting that as camps have evolved, it used to be back in the day, like the parents wouldn't, wouldn't think anything of well, certain parents if, if, of the camp culture, wouldn't think anything of sending their child away for two months or a month. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now it's a big challenge. Like, oh, my child is gone for two days. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> so we find even, even the two weeks is, can be a big ask. Of of, uh, of of certain uh, families, mm-hmm. but uh, but but it is transformative, which is which is a great thing about it. So three two week sessions. So there's only six weeks of Camp Kupagani. Yeah, it's sad. There should be. Uh, we wish there could be more. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a challenge of fitting in with the with the camp because we have um, uh, two weeks of staff training, and then we have a. Uh, a two-week blended session, another two-week blended session, then a girls-only session. Um, and then after that, we have a, a mother-and-daughter weekend and also a parent-child weekend. So it kind of goes throughout the summer, but kind of with the constraints of school schedules, um, we found that, you know, kind of six weeks of, of camp are, are all we get to have. Wow. That must mean uh, that there aren't very many slots I mean, what's the maximum number of students you can handle in a two-week period? Uh, well, we we, uh, we kind of base our uh, well, we actually some a couple sessions we actually are to wait list. So we base our capacity on staffing and kind of projected uh, kids. So we actually have wait lists for certain sessions, but we have a um, a, a ratio of, of three three and a half to one um, staff per or sorry campers per staff member. Um, so we so we kind of uh, rather we want to make sure that we are serving campers well. So we won't take more uh, campers than we're than we're, than we're able to serve. Um, but then the overall um, uh, for for this coming summer, uh, we serve about fifty to sixty campers uh, per session. And did I hear you say 
that it's a three to one ratio, the one staff member for every three campers. That sounds a very, uh, very hands on. Um, it's yes, we have uh, each cabin. We have about seven to ten campers um, per cabin and two live-in counselors. And then additionally, we have uh, what we call program staff who who, who run and facilitate um, you know different activities. Uh, and then our administrative staff. Um, we find that like we're 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 far beyond kind of the American Cap Association has suggested ratios uh, that are about eight or ten to one. Um, but we find that because we're you know kind of dealing with you know issues. You know, it's a big it's a big deal to be a counselor, a good camp counselor at a traditional summer camp. Um, you know, because you're going to be you know a parent and a, men- a mentor figure and a manager and all these things. And then when we layer on that we're you know that we're dealing with you know, with issues of difference and and stuff like that, we want to make sure that we have the uh, you know the amount of staff to to be able to handle you know. Um, to be able to serve the campers very well. Well, I really appreciate the fact that you are a sponsor for with WCPT. I really believe that our missions overlap, and we are very proud to um, have the ads and the sponsorship of Camp Kupagani. And for anybody who's listening, you can go to multiculturalcamp.com, multiculturalcamp.com, or, and this is if you have a really good memory now, 815-713-4110. That's 815-713-4110. Kevin Gordon is the owner, and I am so happy that you guys are working to make this world a better place, because I like to think that WCPT is doing the same thing. Kevin Gordon, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the summer-type weather that we're having. Um, I rarely get outside, Kevin, so I'll take your word for that. Um, I'm, um, I'm pretty much, uh, yeah, my, my house is, is my life. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go out in the backyard since you say it's a nice day. Kevin Gordon is the owner <laughs> of Camp Kupagani. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with uh, politics right after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am very pleased to welcome back to our program Alderman Madoche, who represents Chicago's 19th Ward and uh, has been causing some trouble in city council we have to talk about. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm good, Joan. How are you? I'm good, too. Uh, I was just reading this morning about this uh, dollar store, dollar general ordinance uh, that has been taken up by the Chicago City Council. Talk to me about what it is you want to accomplish and what the need is. So um, first and foremost, there's there's two components of this ordinance um, that dollar stores post a placard on the outside of their buildings with contact information so that residents uh, and local government have someone to contact when there's problems with the store. I'm talking about overflowing dumpsters, garbage strewn around the parking lot, shopping carts out on the sidewalk tipped over, uh, just general cleanliness. And then the second part is um, that a new dollar store 
cannot open up within one mile of an existing dollar store. Uh, and, and, Joan, we have a real problem uh, with dollar stores in our city. You know, it, research shows, you know, they got a very unique business model. They like to operate in proximity to each other. They like to oversaturate a community. Today, here in the city of Chicago, we have $149 stores. And if you drive by any one of them, the condition's the same. So uh, what this is looking to do is to combat the proliferation of dollar stores, which create food deserts in many neighborhoods, uh, and they also create filth. And now, no Matt, these are, these are company-owned stores. I mean, these aren't franchises, right? No. Dollar stores, all three of them, Family Dollar, Dollar General, Dollar Tree, they are owned by private equity Fortune 200 companies. They're making billions. I mean, you look at their, their revenue the past three years, billions and billions of dollars of revenue each and every year. Yet you walk into a store, they have two employees. They have, you know, their stock strewn about the aisles. They're not stacked neatly on the shelves. Um, there's no excuse for this. When they're making this kind of money in communities across our city, they got to be better neighbors, and that's what this ordinance is about. And I thought it was really interesting because in, you know, I don't know if it was the Block Club report, Chicago reporting, because uh, I know they did a lot of reports on how in the cities, particularly in the lower income areas of the city, the stores were just so, so dirty and, you know, like selling infant formula that was expired. But then there was also the rebuttal that, well, Clearly, they know how to do business because some of the suburban dollar stores are described as very clean and very nice. Why aren't all the dollar stores very clean and very nice? There's no excuse for it, and hopefully this ordinance brings them to the table. They want to be better neighbors. They want to clean up their act, and they want to uh, improve, period. And because maybe they thought they could just get away with it? Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, just pay the fine. You know, Joan, in the last six years, they've paid more than $600,000 in fines to the city of Chicago. Yet there's no noticeable change in their behavior. My point is, they're a billion-dollar company. They'll just pay the fine. They won't correct their behavior. And uh, enough's enough, and we're tired of it. I was uh, I was reading again. It may have been Block Club Chicago. It may have been the Trib or the Sun-Times that um, a representative from the company came to you and asked you to delay this legislation and then threatened legal action. Tell me about that. So we've had a problem just in my community alone for the last several years. Uh, Phone calls, emails unreturned from both the local stores, but also moving up the corporate ladder. So when I began working on this back in September, uh, I had a meeting in October. A bunch of, you know, gentlemen flew in from the East Coast. uh, And I said, start reaching out to my colleagues, start going to these neighbors and clean up these stores. The message was given to them in October. So October, November, December, January, now we're in February. We went through 10 iterations of this ordinance. I continue to meet with different city agencies, the law department, business affairs, the mayor's office, uh, dollar store officials, making changes to accommodate them. I kept making concessions. 
They had all this time to clean up their act, and they just dragged it out. They just stalled. And, yes, yesterday uh, they were approaching colleagues of mine on the city council floor during the meeting saying, hey, can we just delay this another month? We want to fly the, you know, the CEO's team out here to talk to you. And I said, you flew the heavy hitters out here in October, and then you blew us off, and you didn't clean up your act. And then when they didn't like that answer, they said, that answer, they said, well, all right, we'll sue you. And I said, all right, sue us. And then I moved forward to legislation, and we, you know, we got 42 votes. And uh, now, now we've got their attention. And now maybe, just maybe, they clean up their act. This is, it just does, it, it surprises me. I don't understand. They're paying hundreds of thousand dollars in fines. They're getting a unwanted negative attention. Is it, is it just that the, they, they're badly managed? I mean, if this were my company and, you know, there was a local investigative, um, journalistic outlet that was, you know, talking about how bad my stores were, if I was getting fined, if the city council feels like it's got to take up this issue, my God, I can't believe that they didn't want to get ahead of this, that they didn't want to just step in and instead of threatening you, meet with you and say, Matt, Matt O'Shea, what do we do to fix this? Let's fix this. You know, what did you get any sense of why they they just didn't seem to care about this? I, I I was utterly confounded over the last several months in trying to come to some resolution. You know, I'm a pragmatic person. I'm a patient person. Let's work this out. And every step of the way, I got BS answers. Hmm. Um, I want to ask you um, about just the city council in in general. I'm sure you're aware of the... Um, of the Fran Spielman opinion piece talking about how um, the mayor has really alienated the City Hall press corps and that they're very frustrated with what they feel are, you know, platitudes and, and non-answers. And the Sun-Times went so far as to say that that relationship is broken and now instead of you know, banking on goodwill, he's going to have to work hard to um, rebuild trust there. What's what's your sense? Is it just somebody who's new to the job making mistakes? Is it is it the personnel who surround him? Because one of the things that sometimes speculated is either nobody's giving him good advice or he's getting good advice and ignoring it. What's your sense? I think part of it is, you know, He's mayor of the third largest city in the most powerful country in the world. Um, this would be overwhelming for anybody. This would be overwhelming for someone who has really served in leadership positions in government. Um, obviously, everything that's going on in the city right now, when we talk about uh, crime in our schools, um, our, our issues uh, in attracting and supporting quality businesses, doesn't matter what neighborhood you're in everywhere. All of this is very overwhelming. Um, I'm hopeful that we've seen, you know, some real problems here, uh, a lot of interaction uh, in and outside of City Hall. 
that frankly is not in the best interest of everybody that we'll start to see a turnaround and we'll see a, more, a, a better functioning uh, form of government at all levels here in the city. Well, you know, I um, I was a little frustrated in the early days of the Lori Lightfoot administration, and it seemed like everywhere I turned, people were like, Joan, you know, she's new to the job. You got to give her time. You got to give her time. So I guess we will extend to Mayor Johnson that same <laughs> grace period, shall we Shall we say. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is um, this controversy over – uh, police arbitration. I'm, I've read about it and read about it, and I'm still not sure uh, that I have a real grasp of it. It, it. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Fraternal Order of Police wants, when somebody's accused of wrongdoing, they want that arbitration to be behind closed doors. And there's an an argument that it should be, especially in the most grievous cases, it should be something that is public. Do I? Is that right? Is that what's being uh, discussed and debated? Yeah, obviously this is a very complex issue, but yes, every every form of labor, uh, every union organization has that ability, has that right. Their members, when facing um, penalties or possibly losing their job, to go to an arbitrator. Um, the argument presented from the other side is that law enforcement should be different. Um, multiple times now, um, the city council has voted against the FOP. Um, multiple times, uh, the court has come back to say, you cannot do that. You need to vote in favor of this. Um, I, myself, I myself have voted um, on the side of the Fraternal Order of Police. Um, I believe everybody should have an opportunity to have their case heard. Um, I don't know where this is going to go. I'm hopeful that, um, you know, we have so many things going on. And, and our, our structural deficit on, on, on every level, our finances are not in order. If this continues, this is going to become a very expensive problem. Um, because really, police will bring lawsuits against the city is if they are forced. I I, um, yes. Yes, they will. That's I don't believe that's an idle threat. I think we're going to start to see that. Um, and, and as these cases are being delayed, it's more and more officers uh, left in limbo. Um, so it, it's not good for morale. It, it's not good for, you know, the continued uh, struggle we have between government and law enforcement. Um, we just need to get this issue resolved and move forward. Somebody uh, made the argument that police should be treated differently because um, they have a different role to play in our society. But then another person I heard countered that with, well, you mentioned the teachers union. You know, if a teacher is accused of sexual assault, that is, by the way it is structured, that is an arbitration case that would be heard behind closed doors. Is that correct? Uh, and in fact, there have been several hundred uh, cases brought like that. Several hundred people have Face that. So it cuts both ways, Joan. 
And uh, like a lot of issues we have right now in government, I'm just hopeful that cooler heads can prevail, come to the table and and come to an agreement, find common ground. And let's move forward. We've got so many issues wrong in the city right now. Um, what um, pick one of those issues that you identify as being wrong right now and let's talk about it. Oh, it's just the the senseless violence that we continue to see each and every day. Students being murdered outside the front door of their high schools. Yeah, but the police did make arrests. So you at least I, that is an example of violence. But at least in this case, it wasn't uh, it doesn't become a cold case, uh, a, a never solved case. I mean, you don't want to see that kind of thing happen at all. But at least um the system is working the way it's supposed to work when something like this does happen. Yeah, alarmingly, we, we've we had two incidents in the last few weeks. One, there were arrests made. They were fellow high school students from a neighboring high school. Um, we still have the incident down in the loop, you know, just blocks from City Hall. We have um, two young teenagers uh, murdered outside the front doors of the school. Uh, the victims and the perpetrators continue to be younger and younger. Um, this senseless violence where people are solving their arguments, their disagreements with guns. is completely out of control. Neighborhoods aren't safe. Um, you know, you continue to hear from people. I'm worried about the future of our city whether that be the central business district, or whether that be uh, communities all across our city. And it's funny, Joan, it's, I feel like many people have become desensitized. They talk about a murder as if it was just a common occurrence. Nobody's shocked anymore when, when you know, the family is, is on camera talking about their loved one whose life was, was cut short uh, with street violence. It's numbing. It, it, I, I just continue to be so frustrated that more people aren't waking up that we have to do something. How do you think Larry Snelling is doing in the job as head of the Chicago Police Department so far? I'm a big fan of Larry Snelling. Um, I've followed his career for many years. He served as deputy chief out here on the south side. I was lucky enough to work with him on a couple things as I was uh, trying to get more license plate reader and pod cameras uh, using technology in my community. Uh, I think he's the right person for the job. He, he commands respect. He holds police accountable. And that's something we very seriously need. And you're talking to the biggest supporter of the police department uh, that holds elected office. He's holding police officers accountable. But Joni's also saying, I'm here to support you. I've got your back. Our officers, our men and women who put their lives on the line each and every day, they need to know that. And they know that with Larry Snelling. Um, what's the deal with ShotSpotter? Is it good or isn't it? And, and believe- do we, or is the argument, some people have said the argument is, we don't have we haven't been collecting the right data, so we can't really decide whether it's it's worthwhile or not. Where do you weigh in on the whole shot spotter controversy? 
I believe Shots Bio is a very valuable tool for law enforcement. I believe it was very helpful to the Chicago Police Department. I disagree with the decision that was made, but the decision was made. I'm hopeful that Superintendent Snelling and others in leadership in the police department uh, are able to work with the mayor to identify what other forms of technology out there can we look to to gain some of the valuable information that ShotSpotter brought us. Joan, it's no secret, but if not for ShotSpotter, many, many victims would have died in the street, in an alley, in a gangway, having bled out, but ShotSpotter brought law enforcement, brought the fire department, a paramedic to the scene to save lives. Well, the one statistic that I saw was they were trying to translate the number of shot spotter calls and whether or not that ended up resulting in an arrest. And when you look at that data, it it doesn't it doesn't appear to be cost effective. Not that it has no value, but when so are you saying that we should look at this data differently, that um, there's another aspect of ShotSpotter, and that's being able to get emergency crews on the site faster to save lives. Because the data I just saw was like, here's the number of times it went off, and here's the percentage of those times that turned into um, arrests and prosecutions. And the numbers looked kind of small. Well, I think, you know, y- y- you can't look at it that way, because let- let's-, let's dissect this for a minute. Shot spotter goes off. There's no 911 calls to corroborate that because no one calls 911. They don't call 911 in your neighborhood. And they don't call it in my neighborhood. They certainly don't call it and some call 911 in some of these low income areas when shots. Actually, are fired Anthony Beal someone... made the same argument when I asked him about shot spotter. He said that in his ward, people have gotten so used to gunshots that he said the people of my ward won't necessarily call 911. They're more prone to call me. They call they call the 19th ward office instead of call 911. If I had a quarter for every time I said, "Did you call 911?" Well, well no. I, I I'm calling you. I said, "Hang up with me and call 911 whatever you're seeing." It's so so do they want you to call 911 for them or do they want you to jump oh, in your car and go over to I, their I, the scene and I see what I think they want me they want me deputized. Mm-hmm. So ShotSpotter and 911 calls are never going to correlate. Having said that, ShotSpotter goes off and the SDSC room in a police district knows, okay, we've got 17 shots. And, and, and it's very clear, very proven, if shots are fired, they can triangulate that to just feed away from where the gunshots came from. Not a block. Not a half mile, 10, 20, 30 feet. That gets resources there. That gets lights and sirens, police officers responding, fire personnel responding. How many times did just getting a squad car to the scene prevent something more catastrophic from happening? How many times getting that paramedic, that ambulance to the scene saved someone? And the other thing is, you know, we have all of these policies that we've put in place, many of which I disagree with, like the no chase policy. So shot spotter goes off, the police go to the scene, 
it's not like the bad guys holding the gun. Like, okay, you got us. They run. They flee. They jump in a car traveling 80, 90, 100 miles an hour. We can't chase them. So to say, oh, shot spider doesn't result in arrests, well, come on. And then when you factor in time after time after time when something horrible happens and detectives are working the neighborhood, they're knocking on doors, they're checking for ring camera footage, they're asking people, what did you see? No one is cooperating. Are they not coming forward with information because they're scared? Are they not coming forward with information because they don't trust law enforcement? Are they not coming forward with information because, you know what, they just don't want to get involved? I don't know. I think it's a little bit of everything. But when communities in crisis aren't cooperating and partnering with the police, when communities aren't calling 911, that's why we don't see arrests and successful prosecutions. Don't even get me going on. <laughs> well, along <laughs> those lines, you said that you, court. you consider yourself the number one supporter of police in the city council. And I would have to assume that is why you are raising money to buy vests. And um, now I have a question. Will you be making the pancakes? Will you be serving the pancakes? Or will you just be walking around looking at the pancakes? Okay, well, now you're calling me out. So, yes, I will be. I have walked in the back in the kitchen where our St. John Fisher uh, Holy Name Society is working tirelessly to make these 10,000 pancakes generously provided by the original pancake house here. But I've been told, get away from here. (laughs) Get out of the kitchen. Seriously. And they yell at me. They say, get out of here. Um. Okay, do you serve serve the pancakes? I will step in and I will serve. I will clean tables. Um, Spend a lot of time thanking people Um, because it's really really a moving experience to be a part of. You know, Joan, we're in the basement of St. John Fisher School. We have thousands of people come through. They just want to thank the police officers. They just want to make a small contribution. Yes, they get a delicious pancake breakfast. But I think just as many people are there just to to nod to a police officer and say, thanks for what you do. Give us the uh, address and the time. Okay, this Sunday, February 25th, we will be at St. John Fisher School, located at 10200 South Washtenaw Avenue in the West Beverly community. From 8 a.m. to 12 noon, we will have our 10th annual Get Behind the Vest Pancake Breakfast. People can't make it out. They can just go to cpdvest.com and make a donation. I I literally just had um, an insurance agent here in the neighborhood called up and said he wants to buy a vest. He's dropping off a check for $500. I mean, that's the neighborhood I live in. That's the neighborhood I represent, and I'm honored to represent them. And I'll have people walk in at the breakfast, Joan, and they'll just hand over, you know, a $5 bill. That's what that's what they could afford, that, mm-hmm. that, but they just want to do a part. But um, it's just well, we talked about event. this. Um, we talked about this when uh, David Hochberg was on earlier in the week, and I don't know whether or not he shared with you, but WCPT has committed to buying two vests 
um, flat out. So as David said, oh, great, only like 398 to go <laughs> because he's cheerful like that, that Mr. Hochberg. <laughs> oh, he uh, he is a force to be reckoned with, isn't he? <laughs> he sure is. He sure is. I'm, I got to keep him calm. Some I have him on the radio, and some days I think he's going to stroke out. But uh, but for this particular cause, it's it's a good one. Matt O'Shea, give it. Give the address and the time for the pancake breakfast one more time. Sunday, February twenty fifth, eight a.m. till noon at St. John Fisher School, one zero two zero zero South Washtenaw Avenue, here in the nineteenth ward. All right. Pancakes for a good cause. Matt O'Shea, thank you for being here. Thanks, Joan. You'll be well. You too. That's going to do it for me today. As I said earlier, Patty is uh, live in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and she is going to be uh, helping with a fundraiser there for Lorenzo Santos running for Congress. If you can make it to Kenosha, it's going to be a good time. Uh, I will see you tomorrow at 2. Richard Chu will, of course, start our day at 6 a.m. Have a great evening, my friends. Good night.